your Bibles, please open up to the book of Titus. We're in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 this morning. And if uh, you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that will be on page 998. There of the Bibles that are in your rows. So we'll continue our series, Good Doctrine, Good Deeds. Kim Philby, Guy Burgess, Donald McLean, not of the American pie variety for you music lovers out there. Uh, Donald McLean, Anthony Blunt, and John Cairncross were known as the Cambridge Five. These were smart kids. These were elite kids who attended Cambridge University back in the 1930s. And upon graduation from that prestigious university, they went on to some really high-ranking positions in the British government, uh, particularly that were involved with the intelligence services. They included their foreign intelligence, domestic security, and their foreign office. And while these five men were positioned and equipped to serve their country very, very well, there was one problem. You see, when they were at Cambridge University, they had a shift in ideals to where they accepted the ideals of communism. And there was a a man who uh, roamed the hallways in the campus of, of Cambridge. His name was Arnold Dutch. And Dutch was no innocent bystander. He was actually an agent for uh, the, the Soviet Union's intelligence services. And so he preyed upon kids who, you know, didn't necessarily buy into the political system of their own country. And he actually had them buy in to become moles in the British government. And, and these, these five men then went on to share loads of damaging information that served to hurt their own country. Now, can you imagine if you are a British citizen, even goes, the damage goes way beyond uh, uh, England and Britain, of course, but, but, but can you imagine how you would feel to know that, that one of your own, so five of your own citizens had excelled in, espionage, really like no other kind of spy ring that the West has ever seen. The feelings of betrayal and hurt that have gone on since this all came to light after the Cold War. Can you imagine? You see, it's it's one thing when we we see this in the world and the horrors of of deception and, and, and fraud, but What happens when we see this in the church? This is what Titus is going to to bring us to this morning. It's it's one thing when we face an enemy from the outside, but it's a whole other conversation when the enemy is within. And this is what Paul points out in Titus 1, starting in verse 10. Let me read these verses in their entirety together. We'll finish at the end of the chapter. He says this, For there are many, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They, one of the the Cretans, one one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul's main encouragement for us this morning is that we need to be sound in the faith by rejecting and rebuking false teachers. Be sound in the faith by recognizing and rebuking false teachers. I want to give us three encouragements from the text as we work our way through this morning that, that I think will help us deal with false teaching and push toward godly living. The first is this, recognize how false teachers deviate from the gospel. We see this in the first few verses of our passage. And what we find when we read not only Titus, but Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, that Paul has a zero tolerance policy when it comes to false teaching, all right? I mean, if, 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 a, if a teacher is out there deviating from the gospel, it's not kind of, hey, buddy, three strikes and you're out. It's one strike and you are out. Because to deviate from the gospel is perilous to the souls of people. And so Paul is going to, to, to lay in no uncertain terms how he feels about these false teachers. And this section, by the way, flows out of the previous section that we looked at last week on the qualifications for elders or pastors. Look back in verse 9 where he says that, that this final qualification of a pastor, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, so, so this idea that a pastor needs to be able to give instruction and to rebuke, refute uh, false teaching, then brings us into verse 10 where he begins by saying, for there are many who are insubordinate. I want those words to kind of register in our minds and our hearts there. There are many who are insubordinate. This was true 2,000 years ago in Crete, and it's true today in America and all over the world. We have false teaching that is prevalent, whether you want to look just in the world. I mean, you can take our prestigious universities here, MIT, Harvard, Tufts. I mean, these universities are filled with professors Sadly enough, with, with more heretical teaching than you can find on TBN. Trinity Broadcast Network. Anyone ever watched that? Okay, that was kind of a joke there. All right. But it's not funny. Uh, but it's, a, yeah, it's supposed to be a joke. Um, so, 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 yeah, those are rival, you know, rival for false teaching between those two parties uh, there. But, but you have, you know, false teaching in the world. But, 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 but not just the world. What about in religious circles? And even to go deeper than that, what about in the church of those who profess to follow Jesus Christ? 
This is the question of Paul's hour, and it should be our greater concern this morning. It's not so much. I mean, we need to identify false teaching wherever it is found, but it is particularly dangerous when pastors who may be really posers are propagating this false teaching so rampantly. And so how do we, how do we uh, identify heresy within the church and these false teachers? Well, Paul's going to give us five characteristics in these early verses that help us identify these false teachers. Number one, he says they are insubordinate. Okay, this is the chief offense for two primary reasons, all right? Number one, it's because their teaching rejected the authoritative teaching of the apostles, which is contained in the word of God. Okay, so, so their teaching directly contradicted that which God had handed down through Christ, through the, through the prophets, through Christ, through the apostles, to the church. It was a direct contradiction to the gospel. It was, there was a deviation from the gospel. That's the first offense. The second offense is that they didn't just kind of do this haphazardly, just kind of happen. They were doing this intentionally. They had been taught the gospel, but they rebelled against that teaching to teach their own ideas and system. So this is not something that was just happening, you know, accidentally. And, you know, maybe, hey, I, I let that slip and I take that back. That's not really what I believe. And that's really not what I believe the Bible says. I mean, they were willingly leading people astray. So they were, first off, insubordinate. Number two, they were empty talkers, all right? This is one word in the Greek that we have to have two words to kind of help us with the, the meaning of it. But these teachers were fluent in their speech. They could draw a crowd, which, by the way, if you see TV preachers who can draw a crowd, let's not be naive and assume that they are on point theologically. The circus draws a crowd, right? These teachers talked a good game. They were big on talk, small on substance. As Al Mohler says, there was no there there. You get that? There was no there there. There was nothing there. No substance to their teaching. Added to that, they were deceivers. By crafty, subtle speech, they drew away people from the wise foundation of God's word. They, they, this is the danger here, okay? And this is, we can throw in the cults in this conversation. They make it sound so much like Christianity. You ever seen a, a commercial for the Church of Latter-day Saints? I mean, they make, it, they make it sound, Mormonism. They make it sound like it's the real deal, but it's not the real deal. And Paul saw this again and again and again in the churches that he helped plant. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. Here it is for you. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paul loved people so much. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, 
you put up with it readily enough. So Paul is chiding. He's trying to bring the Corinthians back because they started to deviate from the gospel to accept a, a different portrayal of Christ, a different gospel. And listen, there is life in one gospel, the true gospel. The gospel that says God is holy and he is just, he is perfect. And he has created us to live in relationship with him. We were made to live for him, to worship him, to reflect how great he is. But the gospel also teaches us that none of us are good enough. None of us reflect his holiness and his character perfectly. We have sin in our life that we've deviated from God. Unlike some lady who is on TBN who says, you know what? Now that I'm righteous, I'm no longer, I don't, I'm no longer a sinner. We all have sin. And, and if our sin is not dealt with, step three, through the cross of Christ, why did Christ die? Christ died to bring us to God. This is why Jesus died. He lived a perfect life and died a cruel death that we might be brought back into a relationship with God so that whoever would look to him in faith, believe in his work, his righteousness, not our works or our righteousness, which could never save us, by the way. Whoever looks to him and believes in him and repents and turns from their own way and path, we can be saved. And I hope you know this. I hope you've experienced this life-changing truth that's found in the gospel, but not another gospel. There is no other. So Paul says they're deceivers. Added to that, they are destructive. Look in verse 11. It says they're upsetting whole families, upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain that which they not ought to, to teach. And then finally, it says they were, they were greedy. They were after shameful gain. We could call them gold diggers, if you will. All right? They were... They were not interested in filling people's hearts with God's transforming truth. They were interested in filling their wallets and their bank account with materialistic wealth. And so that's who they are. That's how we can, that, that will help us identify these false teachers. But what exactly were they teaching? Well, let's touch on that. It, it seems that these men were clinging to certain practices or, or twisting certain aspects of Judaism, okay? And we, we find this out because Paul describes them in verse 10. He says, especially those of the circumcision party, okay? So it wasn't all maybe this group, but this was the, the dominant group of false teachers. And, and we, we find out that, that uh, they were, were coming along and, and, and maybe from verse 14, we see where it says they were devoting themselves to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So perhaps they were taking the genealogies in the Old Testament, and they were, they were, you know, putting in some false teaching and false application of, of these lists and, and creating these, this, this, these new ideas that weren't consistent with the gospel. They were creating commands of men, which Jesus in the gospel rebukes again and again and again, saying you have to do this or that or keep these commands in order to be accepted by God. We call, that, we call that legalism, right? 
adding to the gospel, adding demands and commands to the gospel that the gospel doesn't demand. And not only that, but it's so that we might be accepted by God. And listen, this is, this is the, the, the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel, between true religion and false religion, is, is, is I love what, what Tim Keller says. He says, the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. You got that? I am accepted by God through grace and faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm going to obey God's commands. Religion and these legalistic teachers wanted to add to the gospel. So they said, I obey, therefore I am accepted. And they would create extra rules, extra biblical rules, just so that they can maybe be even more accepted in God's sight. So they were adding their own commands. And let's not miss that Paul describes them as the circumcision party. This could certainly kind of help us understand how they added rules, okay? Um, we know from the book of Galatians, which Paul, again, is very direct and to the point where, where the, the, these Judaizers, as they were known as back in that day, uh, that they were saying, hey, you know, Jesus is good and well, Believe in Jesus, but if you're really going to be accepted by God, then you need to keep these Jewish practices in order to truly be saved, truly be accepted by God. And listen, a, a Jesus plus anything theology is no longer the gospel. If, if we add or take away from any part of the gospel, we have lost the gospel. So it seems that they were taking aspects of, of their previous kind of religious system or kind of making up their own way to add to the gospel. And, 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 and theologians and missiologists call this syncretism, okay? Syncretism is, 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 is taking something from another religious system and imposing it on Christianity and coming up with something that really doesn't look like Christianity any longer. And God always has serious words and says there are serious consequences for doing that. I mean, just go back and read Exodus when Moses is on the mountain meeting with God and he comes down and Aaron has gone, you know, bonkers and the people have created this golden calf to worship. They, they were actually, they were, it, was, it was not just total, you know, they hadn't just totally left the playing field. I mean, they were trying to pursue God, but in a way that God had not ordained. It was syncretistic. This is, kind of, this is really what was going on at Galatia at the time. And it sounds like it's what's going on in the book of Titus as well. And so this is why, by the way, let me just hit a pastoral side note here. This is why in the Bible that God prohibits intermarriage not between ethnicities. Okay, that's on podcast. Like, it's like, go with that nationwide. That's what we see in scripture and believe here as leaders, not between ethnicities, but between people who have different religious devotion. Okay, so, so if you're single or unmarried, I hope you'll hear that and I hope you'll heed that and I hope you'll take that warning to the, to, to the, to the spiritual bank and know that it is for your good. Get on the same page. If you're not on the same page, wait, get on the same page and you'll be pursuing God's best and path of blessing. 
So, so we, can, we can see here that, that these men, they were undercutting the gospel. They were denying the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And where do we, where do we see in the church? Okay, because we're really focusing on in the church, false teaching in the church. Where do we see this maybe more prevalent than, than anywhere else in the church adding to or take away, taking away from the gospel? I would say it's what we know as the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Which is, by the way, just all over TBN, televangelist. How to, so how does that work? It's kind of like this name it and claim it kind of gospel. Okay? Which again is no gospel at all. I mean, they say, you know, hey, if you just believe this, if you just say this, it's also known as the word of faith movement. If you say, hey, I'm no longer depressed, man, then you're not going to be depressed. So it's, it's based on your words, the power of positive thinking, that does not rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and radically transform our life. The prosperity gospel, you'll, you'll see these, these um, uh, just vicious men just turn on the TV and you'll see them looking into the camera. If you'll just sow your seed. Have you ever heard this? Just sow your seed. Your, your, your faith seed of, of whatever you can give. if you'll just sow your seed, then God will bless you back 100-fold. If you give a dime, he'll give you a 1,000 dimes. If you give $100, he'll return. You'll reap, if you sow $100, you'll reap a mill. This This is their message. And what's sad is this, this so-called gospel preys upon the poor and the working class, and people who don't have it. And worse than that, this so-called gospel is going, you know, global into Africa and third world countries where they don't have it. And this is the Jesus that they're accepting? The Jesus that, you know, if you have faith and you believe in this Jesus, that you'll never suffer, you'll never lose your job, you'll never be poor. I mean, how does this square with the cross? The Son of God was brutally killed on the cross. I think there's room for suffering in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's recognize this false teaching. Let's identify this false teaching. This name it, claim it, health and wealth, this self-help, self-esteem gospel, even from really smiley preachers in big you know, stadiums in Houston, Texas, that say you can have your best life now. I mean, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really interested in like God's best life for me, but I know that the best is yet to come. So Paul says, recognize how false teachers deviate from the gospel. He, he just says in verse 12, basically, that you Cretans should, should know, you shouldn't be surprised by this because even one of your prophets, you know, Epimenides is probably who he's quoting here. He says that, you know, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, just as a sidebar, it's good for us to be well-read and know the culture so that we can speak into the culture and help people along where they need to go. So number one, recognize how false teachers deviate from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, 
rebuke false teachers for the advance of the gospel. Rebuke false teachers for the advance of the gospel. Paul's description here leaves us no room to doubt that these false teachers present a great danger to the church of Christ. And so he is saying, look, you need to move forward with a twofold action in light of the rampant distortion of the cross of Christ that these teachers are promoting. So what's the twofold action? Number one, he says, they must be silenced. Look back in verse 11. He says clearly, they must be silenced. It, it, it refers to closing the mouth, even by means, the picture here, the word he uses is, is to close the mouth by means of, of a gag or a muzzle. It's like, you know, not, not playing games here where they have nothing else to say. And you say, well, well, how do you do this? I mean, in the church, this is why you have pastors who are responsible to teach sound doctrine and to keep false doctrine out of the church. So there will never be a Sunday at Redemption Hill, as long as John and I are pastors, as long as our membership doesn't vote in other pastors one day, whether that's 10 years or 100 years from now, okay, that would ever not be some kind of screening process to, to who's sharing on a Sunday, all right? So, so, so we, we guard the, the pulpit or the music stand or whatever you want to call it here as a church plant. Got it? Um, so so we, we refuse to let them speak in the church and we refute their teaching by teaching the Bible and using apologetics to explain why, why their teaching is not consistent. So he says they, they must be silenced and then... Number two, in verse 13, he says, they must be rebuked. Look at verse 13. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply. So, so Paul's picture here is not, you know, kind of, hey, come alongside these guys, put your arm around them, say, hey, no, you probably didn't mean to do that. You know, could you just kind of tweak what you're saying a little bit and everything will be cool. No, he says, look, go be very direct, confront them in their error, act with swift urgency. That's the idea here. Now, let me just maybe anticipate a concern here. Because you're saying, man, Redemption Hill, they're all about the gospel. I mean, it's like, and they're, you know, there's, a community transformed by the gospel, it's all about the gospel, then you know what happens if I come to a community group this week, hope you will, and you know, I say something that's a little bit off from you know, what the Bible teaches on whatever the topic, okay? Listen, there are no like, you know, false teachers teaching police in community group that are gonna blow the whistle and get up in your grill and say, you know, hey, what are you thinking here, Okay? <laughs> Doesn't, doesn't work that way, okay? I mean, we, we, we love, we want to come alongside. I mean, if, you know, so, hey, I've probably said something to community that I'd come back and say, you know what, I probably should have said that more clearly. Or, you know, maybe that's not exactly it. I mean, now granted, if you're coming in and saying, hey, Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of God, he wasn't raised from the dead, there's no life found in him, then we're into a different conversation, <laughs> all right? But, 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 that's not how it would work out in the church. But at the same time, those serious problems need to be handled with seriousness. So that's the twofold action. They must be silenced. They must be rebuked. Now, look back at verse 13. So good, so good. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why, Paul? Why? 
that they may be sound in the faith. So this twofold action has a twofold purpose, okay? The, the, the primary purpose is that even these false teachers, okay, even these rebellious, deceptive, destructive, insubordinate, empty talking, false teachers, we don't hate them. We don't want to see them continue to walk down the path of destruction. We want to see them return to God, be brought back to God and to be sound in the faith. That's what we're after. The word sound means to be healthy. It means to be whole, spiritually healthy, have, have healthy doctrine because healthy doctrine gives us life. So that's the goal, that they would be sound in the faith. We wanna bring all to sound, to be sound in faith. But then number two, okay, this is, this is just implied from the whole first chapter is that we wanna protect the flock, Okay. That's, that's part of the job of, of pastors is, is to protect the flock. And listen, if you're a part of this church, you should want to protect each other, right? So if you see someone receiving some false, bad teaching that doesn't lead to life, then you can have a conversation in a loving way. And, and let me just say on this note, listen, as pastors, we have nothing to give you. And we have nothing to give you, nothing to add to this, God's word. Our job is to be subordinate to the word of God. The word is authoritative. It is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. And so we just try to explain the Bible really, really well and say, hey, this is how it is relevant to our lives. And, 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 and then we just try to give it to you consistently week after week after week. And when we need to, we will be prepared to step up and contend for the faith. Jude 3, I love Jude 3. What, is, what does it say? It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, just know that last phrase, memorize that last phrase. The faith that was once for all, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There's one faith, just one. And it was once for all delivered to the saints. And we have this faith in God's word. He's faithful to preserve it for us. That's not the faith. This is the faith, okay? So we stick closely to this word. And we do this not only by teaching week in and week out, but even trying to be sensitive to cultural dangers and doctrinal dangers that may be common to our context, like materialism, like rampant sex, sensuality and sexuality, like pluralism. We want to touch on those. This one reason why we just preach to Ecclesiastes because it's so relevant to our culture today. This is how we seek to protect the flock and rebuke false teachers so that the gospel would advance. Now, number three. Not only should we um, recognize when false teachers deviate from the gospel and, and rebuke them when they do so, so that the gospel might advance not only in their own hearts, but in the church. But then finally, we want to reveal a transformed heart by living a transformed life. All right? 
reveal a transformed heart by living a transformed life. And some of you think, whoa, that's kind of deep there. And you're right, it's deep. It's, it's deep because the word is deep. So let's try to explain it. What does he say in verse 15? To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So you have this pithy saying, it sounds like a proverb, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And John MacArthur helps us here understand what he's saying when he writes this. He says, when a person is pure in heart and mind, his perspective on all things is pure. And that inner purity produces outward purity. You got that? So, so when, when God, when the gospel has come in and transformed our heart through sound doctrine, by the way, and we receive this life-transforming gospel, then God purifies our heart. He gives us a new heart, actually, and he purifies our heart. And then what's in the heart is gonna naturally, as Jesus says over and over and over again, is gonna naturally come out in our life. So that if we have inward heart purity through God's grace, then that will come out in how we view the world, how we think about everything, and how we act and live our life, no matter what time of the day or night it is. That's what we're after here. On the flip side of that, you have the defiled and unbelieving because their heart is not good, their heart has not been changed by grace, then everything that they experience, see, think about is defiled. It's just a natural spiritual law of God's world that he has made. I mean, this, this helps us understand just how depraved we are. Apart from grace, our minds are defiled. They're not right. We don't always think rightly. Doesn't mean that uh, someone who is an unbeliever can't, you know, reason well on certain things. And, but, but it just means that that, that inward purity, that cleanse, clean heart is, is not there. And so the encouragement, of course, would be for us to pursue, pursue purity. The word pure is used three times in verse 15. So as we, as we pursue this changed life by God's grace, we honor the God who made us and reflect the gospel that has changed us. And this is so good. What's the result then? Matthew 5, 8, one of the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I mean, I hope you love that. I hope that verse resonates with you in your heart and say, you know what? I want that. Man, I want to be pure in heart. Why? Because I want to see God. And this isn't just kind of an, an end of the, you know, end of the story kind of thing, eschatological, you know, result that, that you know, if we're pure and God changes our heart here, that, that we'll see him one day in heaven. That's good, that's true, that's sound doctrine, but here's some more sound doctrine for you. As you're pure in heart, as you walk with God on a daily basis, you will see God. There's nothing stopping us from seeing God at work in our life on a daily basis, in us, through us, all around us. God is, he's working, but we need his grace to be able to see him. Anything else, by the way, is a really boring and shallow life. 
You won't hear that on TBN. Okay. Um, so let's, let's finish up with verse 16. He says that these false teachers, that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good, any good work. And so what does all this have to do with, with false teaching and sound doctrine about the, the purity piece that having a, a, a transformed heart leads to a transformed life? Well, when we accept sound doctrine, that, that true teaching of the gospel and a true belief and trust in the gospel, the work of Christ, his righteousness, it changes us in our heart. It changes from the inside out and that's going to lead to a transformed life. One of the greatest dangers in the church today is so many people who, they may not be false teachers, they may be, but they may not be, but they would still profess to know God, but they would deny him by their works. Can I remind us of the warning that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount? Just before or after what we read this morning where he says, is after, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many great works in your name? And did we not, you know, speak on behalf of your name? And what is, what is Jesus gonna say? He's gonna say what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It, it's one thing to say, we know God. I know God. How many people in the world today, how many Americans say they know God? The percentage of people in America who claim to be Christians, even the born-again variety, even those people, like us, who, the percentage of people who say they know God is staggering, and yet we don't have to look hard to know that those numbers cannot be true. You can profess to know God. You can even think you know God. But if you don't truly know God, and if God does not know you, and the way that this happens is again, through faith in Christ. Jesus is enough. Jesus brings us back to God. So when Jesus says, this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, three, we really need to take heed. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life, that we really know God. Not just, hey, I know a few facts about God. Intellectually, I would sign off, there is a God, Jesus was real, he died on the cross. Maybe he even rose again from the dead. We can sign on, off on that intellectually and believe it with our head and not have our heart buy in and know God at that level. So let me ask you today, do you know God? Do you know God in a life-transforming way where now you are bearing fruit for him and living for him consistently? Because anything else, we should seriously ask the question, hey, has my heart been changed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? I met with a friend, we'll close with this. I met with a friend this week. And we were, you know, talking about life. He's going through a difficult time. And he's actually, you know, kind of grown up in a church culture. 
hasn't been a part of a church in a while, but, but kind of grew up in a church culture. And, and so we were just, you know, talking about some of the challenges in his life right now, some of the struggles. And sometimes, you know, as a pastor, people, you know, expect that you can help them out, not only with maybe spirit, the spiritual side of life, but even the practical side of life. And so he was probably taking a big leap there, but he had asked me a few things and I was trying to think through it with him and help him out. But, but thankfully, our, our, our conversation came back to the gospel. And I said, you know, we're thinking about this relationship, that relationship. But, but you know what? Um, the most important relationship that I really want to make sure you have squared away is your relationship with God. And, and, I, and, I, and I just, you know, shared the gospel extensively from beginning to end. Much of what you just heard crystallized. Took some time to explain it all. And, and, and I just said, you know, hey, man, um, one day when you stand before God, why would he accept you? And his answer was, was so good, but yet so not good enough. He said, he said, you know what? I don't have an answer. I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't now. Now, the reason that was good is because most people would say, because I'm a good person, because I'm good enough, because I did enough good deeds in my life that God should accept me. And hopefully we've already concluded that that just, that doesn't work out. It doesn't add up. Do the math. It, it, it fails every time. But, but for someone like my, my friend this week, they're a step closer because he said, you know what? I don't have an answer. And we need to see that we don't have an answer apart from Jesus Christ. And so if you do not know God, if you've never been saved, if you've never been, you know, committed your life to Christ and followed him in baptism and, and, and started to walk as a Christian, then we invite you to receive Christ today to follow Christ with your life today. It's as simple as, uh, as some, you know, teachers and preachers say is ABC, okay? And this is good enough. It's just to admit your need for God. Admit that you have sin in your life and that sin has separated you from God. And after you see that and you admit that, then you be, believe in Christ. Stop living for, your, uh, for yourself and, and turn in faith to him to believe in his work and his righteousness. And then C is to commit to following Christ with your life. And the Bible says if, if you'll do that, if you'll believe in your heart that, that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the, the, the dead, and if you confess that with your mouth, then the Bible says God will save you. So if you need that today, like don't put that off. Don't say, you know, next week will be a good time. Next year will be a good time. 10 years from now, I'll get this all straightened out. Why not today? Tomorrow's not promised to us. If you need Christ, decide today. There's only one gospel. Let's cling to it. Let's teach it. Let's live by it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And God, we pray that you would do a great work in the life of our church. Father, we specifically pray that you would guard us against uh, false teaching, even from our own pastors. Lord, keep us from that. And uh, Lord, help us to recognize it out and about and within so-called churches and from so-called pastors and teachers. And God, most of all, we pray that we would know sound doctrine. And that sound doctrine would have changed our heart and continue to change our heart and lives that we might live our lives for you. So God, whether someone's here today and they're exploring Christianity and not, a new, not, not yet a believer, God, would you convince them that this is true? 
and that they would respond in, in belief and faith and repentance. And, and God, for those of us who know you, we have the same need to continue to practice repentance and faith in Christ that we might live to your glory. Help us do so today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.